often through the church liturgical year, we talk about resurrection only on Easter Sunday, but today is in fact a an Easter Sunday in itself. Every Sunday is an Easter Sunday in itself, actually, when we lift up joyfully the power of God's presence, God's promise to have the last word even in the face of death. This morning's text comes to us from a part of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in the 15th chapter, and it's a pretty convoluted chapter if you have ever read it carefully. He's trying to help us understand how God resurrects the body. The church in Corinth has seemed to have forgotten this. When I was in college uh, my sophomore year, I had forgotten a lot of things too, like that I was supposed to be a responsible student. So my father wrote me a letter reminding me of that fact, which I, to this day, still remember. It didn't immediately bring me back on track, but it gave me direction about which way I should be going when I finally figured this thing out. I'm grateful for Paul's letter to the church at Corinth that brings us back and puts us on track for what resurrection is and what it means to us. I'm reading this morning from the translation known as the... um, Forgot the name of it. Message. Thank you. This is the message about the message. And it comes to us from the 12th chapter through, excuse me, 12th verse through chapter, uh, verses 20. Now let me ask you something profound yet troubling, he writes. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead... How can you let people say that there is no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've been told is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we've passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If corpses can't be raised, and what he means by that are the actual buried corpses themselves. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. This is the word of the Lord. I am frequently asked by many of you why we do not say the Apostles' Creed more in church. So now here is your opportunity. Instead of coming at the end of the sermon, we're going to stand now and say it at the beginning. It's in page 35 in your hymnal if you need some helps. Please stand and let us say what we believe together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. So did you listen to what we just confessed, along with all of the story of Christ's life and death and resurrection, we also confessed we believe in the resurrection of the body. And I would like to ask if that's really true. When we say those words, what we really usually mean in the church and for most Christians is we believe in the resurrection of the spirit or the soul, but not the body. To say we believe in the resurrection of the body, according to Paul, is that in a new way, in a new form for which we cannot understand, it is a mystery, Paul says, we are embodied again in the kingdom of God. That somehow God creates a new body in the resurrection in which we still inhabit body and spirit. And not only are we raised in this day, Paul thinks it's the day at the end, at the end of time when the, trumpet, when the trumpet horn is blown and all the dead rise up out of the grave like some Michael Jackson thriller video that we remember all the corpses coming up. That's not the way it's envisioned by Paul. Something new is raised up, a new body, but it is still a body. Now that's strange for us mostly because we're enlightened and we're we're grounded in Greek philosophical thought. In fact, this is exactly why Paul is writing the letter to the church at Corinth. They have been influenced by the Greek philosophers, and Greek philosophy, through Stoicism and Neoplatonism, says that we are separate body and soul, and that the job of enlightenment, of spiritual enlightenment, is to get further and further away from our bodies, our material selves, and the earth the material groundedness of dirt, to get away from that because, you see, bodies are disgusting. Bodies die and they decay and they emit all kinds of disgusting fluids. Bodies aren't good in Greek philosophical thought. It is known as Gnosticism later in life. And the job then is to move away from the ground and the body and all the material into the spiritual seventh heaven, seventh heaven, we become more spiritual by leaving our incarnate presence. And Paul says that's heresy. Paul is a Jew. And being a Hebrew person, Paul understands the power of body. You cannot be a Jew alone. When you're a Jew, you are embodied in the congregation. All of us is each of us, and each of us is all of us as a Jew. That's why there's so much emphasis on the congregation of the whole Hebrew people. 
As a Jew, Paul understood God's blessing of all creation made real in the first two chapters of Genesis. The first story of creation, we remember that wonderful mythic story of seven days. God creates all that there is and calls it all good. And then God creates the human and calls it very good. And then says, this is made in the image of God. And by that image, he's meaning not just a spiritual image, but presumably the physical embodied image. And in the second story of creation, it's a really fascinating story. It's actually older than the first one. God reaches down and grabs a handful of dirt, clay, dust. The word is Adam, Adam, as in Adam, his name. And God molds it into the figure of a human, but there's no life there. There's no animation there until like that balloon, God blows God's breath into that figure, and then voila, there is human life. There is, there is animation. There's vitality. Life is that which has been inspired into us from God. It is that spirit of God in each of us, but it is it is not completely different from our bodies. Like the balloon, one cannot exist without the other. It's a fascinating understanding of how we see life, you see. If we see it like the Greeks, like the Enlightenment, it really continued to grow into the Enlightenment period in our history when we began to think that we were brains without bodies. And that the point of Knowledge and wisdom was to gain more of it in our heads while our bodies didn't really matter that much. We became separated. And we see that all the time in professional uh, medicine and in professional ministry, uh, all over the place where we who have had to work so hard to get into school and then work so hard to get our degrees become disembodied, we become dissociated from our bodies because we're stuck in our heads. And that's the Greek thought, you see, that seems to say, well, it's the brain that matters. But you know what? The brain is different than the mind. The brain is that organ in our head, but the mind is the totality of who we are. The brain, as well as our body, as well as what is inside us and all the gifts that have been given to us through all the generations and genetics that we have inherited, as well as through the whole environment of all the people that have cared for us and nurtured us. We are the combination of all that, as well as the outside culture in which we live. That's the mind, both inside and out, encompassing all of us, which means we're also connected to each other. So when we talk about the body and the spirit split, Paul is saying no such thing. His image is that God will resurrect a body, a new body. He hedges. He doesn't know for sure. Nobody knows for sure what it is like. Paul thinks it will come at the time of the bugle of uh, horn at the last day, which means those who've died up to this point are still resting asleep in their graves and haven't yet been raised. But there's other biblical evidence that says that those who have died are even now raised with Christ, as Jesus said to the criminal on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. The point is the Bible doesn't 
care to give us the details. And Paul's not giving it to us either for that reason. You know, when Jesus came back, he came back in bodily form. It was an embodied resurrection, but nobody recognized him in his body, his new body, until he did something that was particularly or peculiarly Jesus-like. And when he did that, those who knew him before immediately got it. When he broke bread on the road to Emmaus, when he presented himself to Doubting Thomas and the disciples, they got it when he said, peace be with you. But before that, they thought he was a stranger, embodied, but a stranger. And this has such implications. If that's the case, then, when somebody says you're having a psychosomatic problem, implying that it's all mental, in Paul's mind, there's no such difference between psycho and somatic. That mind affects body and body affects mind. That our bodies can't be healed unless our psyches and our spirits can also be healed. And that one way we can heal our psyches and spirits is also by healing our bodies. There's this interdependent relationship between the two. Just as it's interdependent in a larger congregation, just as it's interdependent in, in our world. We are all organically connected. Not completely the same, but as in every atom... Each different piece needed for the Adam to live. This is a Hebrew understanding that we've lost because we are so enlightened, Greek-thinking people. If this is true, think what that means for medicine. Think what it means for issues of justice. Fairness. Think of the moral and ethical implications that all body created by God matters, which means that the way we will treat other bodies is the way we're supposed to treat our body. Do unto others as you do unto yourself. The way we treat the body called the earth is the way God treats the body called the earth. We are stewards of it. It has an enormous moral and ethical implication about what's happening with our climate. If we are that connected, it changes the whole sense of my individuality versus your individuality because if you go down and we're that connected, then a part of me goes down too. This is what it means to be connected as the Spirit of God embodied in each of us. One of you said to me last week, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it wasn't really. Uh, it came from someone I didn't expect, to tell you the truth. Uh, she said to me, I need you, to know, I need you just to know that um, I reconciled with somebody uh, last week that I have been estranged from for over 30 years. I smiled, knowing this person. That, oh, yeah, who? And she told me her name. And I was stunned because I knew the person she'd reconciled with. And they are so completely different politically and theologically. And their whole worldview is so completely different. I couldn't believe it. So I said, what did you do? She said, well, I I decided 
that since I'm a member of this church and since our mission is to be a movement for reconciliation, that I needed to take that seriously enough and go to this person as an attempt to do just that, to reconcile, which means to bring back together. And it worked. Just one small witness of what God intends when he talks about the resurrection of the body. All that has been disintegrated will be brought back together and integrated as one. We are the body of Christ, and individually we are members of it, but we are members of a larger body that makes each of us one How grateful I am that this church takes that seriously. Amen.